Welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time listening to the First Time Podcast, welcome and let me explain. It's really, really simple. Either me, the guest, or both of us are going to talk about a first time experience, uh, usually a movie or TV show, and today is a movie. So my guest today is an award-winning writer. He's a fellow collector and horror movie nerd and a co-host of Attack of the Killer podcast. Welcome Andy Wassum to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you were on, I think, I, I'm looking back and I know I just talked to Mike and I think it was our my, my first episode, uh, the Twin Peaks one, which sort of started this whole thing. And almost 50 episodes in, I thought I'd have you back. Um, oh. Yeah, and, and it's funny because we had talked about different ideas on what, and, and there was one movie on your list that's like one of your favorites that I haven't seen. So it's something that... Um, down the road we'd have to do but uh cool hand luke is one of your favorites yes. right yes absolutely and yeah. i've never seen it yeah it's a it's a paul newman you know classic um it's anybody that's ever i mean it's not really uh a rebel movie it's just about a guy who just refuses to be anything else than him than himself he just uh uh, no matter where he is, he's he's gonna be he's gonna be Luke, and there's a reason why they call him Cool uh, uh, Cool Hand Luke, which is explained in the movie. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely one of my favorites. Well, definitely one that's like been on my forever watch list. I know about it. It's obviously a classic in film, in all of film. Mm-hmm. Um, just one I've never for for some reason have never seen it just like you know several of the big ones i haven't seen but i'm slowly checking them off and uh yeah i was happy to have you on and and uh i'm excited but uh i know that just recently you found out that one of your um screenplays is is uh featured in a festival is that correct um yeah this the oregon uh scream week i believe the it's actually called i want to get the name right oregon film scream week or something like that and um they put me in they put me in the top 10 and uh of their of their horror screenplay category uh they actually have subcategories for you know sci-fi and all this other kinds of stuff it's it's the first time that i've actually uh I don't want to say prescribed, but uh, sub- uh, submitted, thank you, uh, submitted to the Oregon Scream Week Horror Film Festival. That's what it's called now. And uh, yeah, they they kind of went out of their way. It's the first time that they've ever, um, they made like a a video for us, you know, and describing, you know, what what each script is about in the top 10 and what we did well uh in terms of our writing and i was just like wow they kind of really went out of their way to say something nice about each of the 10 finalists work so so what's your screenplay and what's it about for those who haven't seen a video um the screenplay is it's about a rural missouri woman who is forced to uh help drug runners receive receive a shipment of narcotics in deep in the uh basically deep in the ozarks where this this river f- f- flows through and it's 
the same part of the woods where her daughter died mysteriously, but, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's a supernatural force that she has to face that's really kind of known to the town, but it's kind of, it's kind of an urban legend. Some people believe it and some people don't, but the woman who has to go in there with these drug runners, uh, she knows that it's real. And she finally has to face it. So it's a feature st- feature. Yes, yes, yes. It's called Backwater. Sorry. Okay, cool, Backwater. Um, and that's sort of how we met is because you and Danielle have written um some short screenplays that were submitted, accepted, and won at Snake Alley Festival Film. And I think I met I met you guys before I took over for the fest. I was just there as a audience member that was enjoying all things and. We, uh, I think, I, I don't remember the exact moment, but I remember you wearing a shirt that was like the Carpenter and Hooper, and it had like the list of all the horror directors, and I was like, oh, yeah. th- this guy seems like he would be pretty cool, and of course, uh, yeah. you know, sat in for your, your uh, stage reading and thought, you know, okay, this guy is a horror fiend, and you guys are so nice, and, and it's just always fun when people visit from out of town to get to know them, and you guys are have returned several times over the years and uh yep. really cool to you know i've, I've missed you the last couple of years but you guys have been writing a lot more uh feature stuff right yeah yeah we've been trying to um tried to get more uh features written and sometimes when you uh when you're trying to get a feature done you just don't really have you don't really have enough time to you know squeeze in the uh the shorts that you that you want to, to you know to get out to the competitions but um and you and truth be told we really probably should you know because the the shorts are what really kind of you know help us stretch our legs and you know create create creativity wise but who knows you know you never can tell we we need to get we need to get back in there and get some shorts written so have you guys uh well, I guess more you have you been uh, writing a lot during the last year where we're sort of stuck at home or you just been uh, at normal pace. I mean, it's, it's, I've talked about a few times on here with people. It's like, I felt like people felt this pressure that they had this time off. They should use it to write, but yeah, it's a unique situation because uh, we're all stuck at home and it's, it was sort of stressful. It was a shit year for everybody. So it's like, yeah. you know, that pressure could actually work in the opposite way. Uh, yeah, yes, yes and no. You almost feel like, uh, you want to, um, since you have all this extra time, you feel like you should be forcing yourself and taking advantage of, you know, this, all this extra time that you, you can write. But with me, it's, I, I, I can't really force my creativity and then it when it feels forced it just doesn't feel feel right it has to for me it's got to come you know just organically on and whatever pace that it comes in it it comes in but usually once the ball gets rolling and you know i get excited about a project or an idea and it starts to snowball that's that's when you know the my the the higher my clip of writing, you know, begins to go. It's, uh, like I said, it's it's got to happen organically. It doesn't really matter how much time that I do have. I could have, like, you know, not very much time at all, <laughs> you know. 
And once it gets going, it just gets going. So, I mean, that's how it works for me anyway. I don't know about other riders. Yeah, I find the process fascinating because um, it takes like a certain breed of person who wants to be a screenwriter. Um, There's so many people who want to either be in front of the camera or be behind the camera as a director. But there's like a different breed of people who want to write. And that's not, that's not something, I mean, I, I did creative writing in college and that kind of stuff, but I was never something that I was like, I want to pursue this. Like what, what is it that, like, when did that start for you? Uh, That's weird that you asked that because I was thinking about this recently. I think it started for me when I was in, in grade school, uh, just writing in general, because I was always able to write uh these little stories and that my you know grade school teachers they would just humor me you know and um they'd let me read them from the class and I'd I'd be able to entertain the class and be able to make them laugh uh, I mean I I there's one and this is going to be kind of embarrassing that there's one that I do really remember and I remember it was a superhero story that I had like a guy named Captain Fruit Salad against bad guy spin <laughs> bad guy spinach yes and um he had a uh the bad guy spinach had a Bako bits machine gun right <laughs> nice and <laughs> yeah and um yeah and it would like you know it was and I totally ripped off Superman with like the bullets bouncing off his chest like the Bako bits would like bounce off Captain Fruit Salad's chest and um yeah that was probably the inception of when i could when i realized that i could you know make my friends laugh and entertain them and you know for lack of a better word just be the center of attention i guess <laughs> and uh just it, just to be able to you know get everybody's mind off of you know the next assignment we had to do or you know, in anything, you know, I mean, because I, you know, truth be told, you know, my brother and my sister, they got like most of the athletic ability, but you know what? I, I could, I could definitely out entertain them, I think. <laughs> well, I've always known you as like a good storyteller, like anytime oh, you've, you. you've gone back and, and not just in your writing, but just in conversation when uh you know we jump on the podcast a lot of the stuff before we even hit record on uh aotkp we're just bullshitting and uh it's like some of those stories you've told especially on like the bonus episodes when we're not talking directly about movies uh you know you're you're very engaging in that so i can definitely see that evolution thank you um i was actually today listening to tarantino on a few podcasts he was on uh, mark maron's podcast and joe rogan's podcast and listening to his him talk about his process of writing is interesting um, how it's evolved. Cause he said when he did like reservoir dogs and true romance and the early stuff, he would, he would be a person that stayed up all night. He would start writing like, you know, late night into the early morning. And that was his process. And then as he got older, he's like, I don't really feel like this is a job to me now. So I need to set a work schedule and do it during the day. So he says he start now he starts writing at like, 11 a.m. or noon and he'll go until early evening and then in his true like rich screenwriter director move he's like and then I go into my heated pool and I float for like two hours and think about what I just wrote and um, either go either the next thing comes to me or 
I go back and, and edit what I've already written because I didn't like it. But it's like, yeah, not all writers can go to their heated pool and, and think for two hours. But then again, <laughs> it's like, even if you had one, uh, that might not be your process. But it's it's interesting to hear how he does it because it's like, we, we know him as, you know, the, one of the biggest names in modern film. And, and it's like, we just don't hear a whole lot of that kind of stuff. We just hear about the behind, you know, the, the, the controversies or, you know, stuff like that. But it's like, I, I'm, I just love that. He, he just wrote, put out his new book, uh, the novelization of once upon a time in Hollywood. So yeah, he's out promoting that. And it was like, I, I'm excited that he's doing the podcast around because like I said, we always see snippets of him, but we don't really like on late night shows and stuff, but we never really hear long form conversations. And I just, I feel like people don't focus as much on the writers as they do directors. Like, um, we, we know so many directors, but you know, there's only a handful of like writers that are household names. And I think people don't, yeah. people don't understand how important a movie can only be so good with, you know, it has to, has to have a solid script. So uh, absolutely. I've always thought writers were sort of the unsung heroes of, of film, but it's not something I ever, ever, ever desired to do myself. It seems like a long, uh, crazy process like it takes someone with a certain mental fortitude or something yeah it's and and the and the thing is i mean it can sometimes it can be so uh (laughs) um how do i put this not not unforgiving but it's like uh, a thing sometimes it can be kind of thankless i feel like that because like even though like when you're submitting to you know competitions and that and and they'll give you say we had thousands and stuff and like uh we had thousands of submissions and people you know they say you know not that your writing wasn't bad and and it probably wasn't you know but you really kind of just want to be part of you want to you want you to hear you want your work to be recognized and appreciated and uh yeah it can really 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 be a bummer you know getting rejected but that doesn't mean that your work is not bad per se but there's just uh that some in some festivals they just you know think that some other people's work is is better i think william goldman uh who wrote you know uh you know all the president's men and princess bride and uh Butch casting the Sundance Kid, he says, you know, he said it best. He just goes, nobody really knows anything. Keep going, in terms of writing, and and he's right. Uh, just you just got to keep writing, and then just you know, see what happens. Well, as someone on the other end, like when you're saying, you know, it sucks to be rejected or or get that. Like I know my probably my least favorite thing of running a festival is turning stuff down just because oh yeah it's like who am i one who am i to say that your stuff yeah. isn't good enough but that is, yeah and people you know they get that rejection and that's what they feel but i wish i could and i try to write it in like the the rejection email like look it's not a matter of like your stuff isn't good enough we just only have four days to fill and there's only so much time you know and it's like to me of course anybody who gets anything made whether it's a film or a, a, a screenplay uh it's just amazing to me that just getting it done mm-hmm. is an accomplishment in its own mm-hmm. you know it should be like celebrated just making a thing i don't know well yeah i think since it's such a it can be such a um it's very subjective a, and 
Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it, it can be such a nerve-wracking process just doing it, you know, because you you have a uh i guess a heightened sense of self-doubt when you're doing something it's just like man is this any good it's just like do you know do i keep going i mean sometimes just finishing um writing anything is an accomplishment in and of itself you know just crossing the finish line going from fade in to fade out and actually finishing your story, regardless uh, of whether it's been edited or if if it's you know uh, been polished or not. I mean, just going from fade in to fade out is an accomplishment in and of itself. Because sometimes there's so very few people that actually even just do it or just cross the finish line. So, um, they should. I mean, any writer should be proud of that. I agree. Yeah. And like I said, it's just I, I I hate it. And then I hate even more the like giving out awards because that's subjective, too. And luckily, I'm not a judge. I hand that off to the judges of the festival and let them decide because I could never have a say, you know, one day this might be better. I think this I like this better. But another day I like this other thing. And it's all a matter of opinion. It's art. You know, it's all subjective. So it's it's so hard to say what's considered good, what's considered bad. Yeah, and all all those you know, like you said, it's subjective, and all those opinions. And one of my one of the things that I've said all the time, and I think it's absolutely true. Nobody truly writes these things alone. You know, I I'm lucky enough to have a wife that also writes, and I get her feedback. You know, we have people that you know read our stuff. They give you know they put in their two cents. And it really, you know, readers actually, you know, really, really help us uh, either make make the make the screenplay better, or you know, they they uh, they they find mistakes that we didn't, you know, that we didn't see. Because I mean, you can only uh, you can only look at your work for so long for you know so many times until it just all blends together until you're just it's just a blur you know you just you need a new you need a lots of different eyes on your own work to make it better absolutely and that's a great segue we're talking about screenplays and <laughs> and, and, and eyes on your work yes. um we're talking tonight about a film that is uh something that john carpenter was involved with that neither of us had seen um he actually wrote the screenplay for this movie, and it is Eyes of Laura Mars. In a world of breathtaking models and the beautiful people, Academy Award winner Faye Dunaway is photographer Laura Mars. Her work, the subject of controversy. Tommy Lee Jones is Detective John Neville, intrigued by her photographs for his own reasons. These are police photographs. They are strictly our own material. They were never published anywhere at all. So my question is very simple. Why am I photographed so much like yours? That's right. Somewhere between the sensations of high fashion and the precise form of her art lies another dimension, unexplored, unexpected 
Unwillingly, Laura Mars becomes a witness to a series of murders, watching through the eyes of a killer. Eyes of Laura Mars. When it happens, I can't see what's in front of me. What I see is that. Think of that camera as the eyes of the killer. Drawn by a mystery. Do you understand? Their lives converge. Her world, sensual, dazzling, provocative. His world, demanding, dangerous, violent. This is incredible. In the midst of all of this, I, I can't stop thinking of you. I know. I know. What, what is going on? I don't know. I mean, it's completely unprofessional of me to be walking with you in the woods, I'll well, tell you that. I don't that. have time for this. I, I mean, I'm supposed to be catching a killer. <laughs> well, I'm completely out of control. <laughs> I saw him in the elevator, so I'm just by visions. She is linked to a killer. At any place, at any time, a witness. At any moment, a victim of her own eyes. Okay, so the as, as of this recording, the Halloween Kills trailer came out, and so many people are complaining about it spoiling things. That fucking trailer tells everything except, <laughs> except for the, the the big reveal. But uh, I yeah. mean, it, it's like four minutes long, and this was the actual theatrical trailer, and it tells way wow. too much. But um, if you're listening to this, you should have watched it already. And if you hadn't, um, you still haven't got the ending spoiled. But we're gonna spoil it, so you know, oh, totally listen on. But um, Eyes of Laura Mars, screenplay by Mr. John Carpenter, um, David Zayla Goodman, who also wrote Straw Dogs and Logan's Run, um, with, oh, a, nice. with a story by John Carpenter, directed by Irvin Kirshner, who also did Empire Strikes Back, um, Never Say Never, and RoboCop 2. Uh, oh, yes, RoboCop 2. Starring Faye Dunaway as Laura Mars. Um, we know her from Bonnie and Clyde, Chinatown, The Towering Inferno, Mommy Dearest, and Network. Um, a young Tommy Lee Jones and his unibrow as John Neville. <laughs> he plays a detective, the love interest, and um, we'll get to what else he is later. Uh, Brad Dorif, a young Brad, handsome, handsome Brad Dorif as Tommy Ludlow. Um, Renee Abrajonois, that's, that's I'm butchering her name, as uh, Donald Phelps. Uh, that's Laura's friend who has the big blonde hair. He looks sort of like uh, Sigmund Freud, one of those... Uh, you know, Sigmund and whatever the uh, uh, Vegas performers. Sig Siegfried. Uh, Siegfried. Yeah. Yes. Not Sigmund. Sigmund is the is the, the psych psychologist. psychologist. Right. <laughs> so Siegfried and um, 
we got Raw Julia as Michael Reisler. Uh, we know him as Gomez Adams when they redid uh, the Adams Family. And then uh, Frank Adonis as Sal Volp, who's in Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Ghost Dog, Ace Ventura. He's always sort of played the tough Italian, like, mobster type guy. Um, On its release, the film received mixed critical reviews, but it was a box office hit, earning $20 million from a $7 million budget. Um, Nice. So Laura Mars is a renowned New York City fashion photographer who features sensual and violent images in her controversial work. Suddenly, Laura gains the ability to see visions from a serial killer's perspective, and it happens to be her friends and associates that he is stalking. Aided by the police investigator John Neville, who's played by Tommy Lee Jones, Laura tries to prevent the murderer from finding more victims, but she has no idea who the psychopath could be. So right away in this opening scene, I'm like... This is written by John Carpenter, and we open up with a POV shot from a killer. Did you did you see that right away? I'm like, oh, Halloween. Oh. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's no uh, no uh, child's uh, clown mask, but yeah, no Deborah Hill hand. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because this came out, I believe, in '78, and this came out r- right around the time of Halloween. Um, and yeah. Carpenter wasn't the Carpenter that we obviously know now, but not even then. He didn't have a hit under his belt and somehow uh, got this sold. I think there's only like a few Carpenter screenplays that he didn't end up directing out there. And this is one of them. Uh, the the two that only come to mind right now are, well, is actually another Tommy Lee Jones movie, is Black Moon Rising. And, and uh, there was a Western with... Um, Louis Gossett Jr. and Anthony Edwards called El Diablo, which is pretty much is which is basically a comedy anyway. Um, and the those are actually pretty good. They're not bad. Were those written like pretty early in his career too, or were they later? Later, I believe. Really interesting. Yeah. It seems like um in my mind, I'm like, he got to a certain point after Halloween was a huge success, and then, you know, from there he could just sort of in my mind, I'm like, he could do what he wants, but we know that, you know, he slowly built up to the thing, the thing flopped, and then it was back to the sort of uh, smaller budget films for him. No more studio pictures. Yeah, yeah. I think, what what did he have after this? Well, I guess he didn't really write. I don't think he had anything to do with the writing of the Elvis TV series, did he? No, I think he just was a, a hired director. Yeah. yeah, just a hired gun to get it done. Um yeah, uh, because Dark Star and uh, Assault were uh, before. Yeah, Assault on Precinct. Yeah, yeah. So this was like one I thought my actually my boss was the one that kept bringing this up because he's he has like a strange sort of view on film. Like I bring up John Carpenter, and the first thing that pops in his mind is, "Oh, he he did Eyes of Laura Mars," and I'm like what what are you talking about this was years ago and i'm like no he didn't yeah. and then i look it up and i'm like well shit he wrote it um and the story was by him but he he didn't direct it that's interesting and uh i somehow have never seen this and somehow you had never seen it no no what overall what did you think of it did you enjoy it i did actually i i didn't think it was it was too bad i mean it's you know i i had i had some problems with it i mean I was surprised to see, I had no idea, I knew that Faye Dunaway was in this, and I knew that uh, John wrote it, 
And that's literally the only thing that I knew. And I knew that it was just like, okay, it's going to be some sort of eye things. And I don't know why I thought of like the storyline from Body Bags. Because, you know, when Mark Hamill's gets his eye, like, replaced, and it's from, like, a killer, and it turns him bad, I was just like, is that going to be, like, the same thing? But, um, no, this is obviously different, but the one thing that really blew me away was just, like, I started seeing, like, I didn't know Tommy Lee Jones was in this, I had no idea Brad Dorif was in this, or Raul Julia, and I was just like, wow, they actually, they've got some name power here, and... I was, you know, that and that really kind of drew me in, and I kept recognizing this Rene Abergenois. I I hope I'm I'm probably butchering his name too, and I realized what I uh, remember him from. It was a vampire comedy from the 1980s called <laughs> "My Best Friend Is a Vampire" with Sean Leonard. <laughs> Do you remember that movie? I don't, but that's just so funny. Like all these, out of all the things. Uh, you're like, I recognize him. Of course, I, I thought he looked like a tiger trainer from Vegas. So, <laughs> Yeah, but actually, my best friend is a vampire is like a really fun 80s vampire. And it's in the same, it's cut from the same cloth as uh, Once Bitten with Jim Carrey. Okay. It's kind of it's like in that realm. Uh, but yeah, seeing all these, uh, you know, familiar faces and just the one that really impressed me overall you know, seeing them was was Brad Dorif. I think he's one of the most underrated actors of the last, you know, shit, 30, 40 years. Just the, the stuff that he can do, just, you know, I mean, say what you want about, you know, all the child's play and all that other stuff, but just, like, seeing him in um, Cuckoo's Nest and uh, being the... Sh- uh, the the town doctor in Deadwood, especially just like his, he's a great actor. Exorcist three. I mean, I know it's another horror movie, but what a performance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went into this pretty much blind too. I didn't even know Faye Dunaway was in it. I, all I knew was Carpenter's attachment and um, I, I stayed clear of like reading anything. I saw the cool poster, which is very late seventies, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and they end up using it in the movie, but um, I, I didn't know what to think. I sort of thought the same thing with the eyes. Maybe it was like, um, I thought maybe it was like a blind model or something. And, uh, you know, mm, she would have visions yeah. or something, but, um, no, it's, it's interesting because, and we'll jump all around, but it's like this Laura Mars, she's a photographer and she's having these visions. Um, we never, ever get any kind of explanation as to why or how this is happening. Yeah, it just yeah, it just I mean it 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 something in her psyche kickstarts these visions and you're just like, okay, here we go. Yeah, and I, I not that I was expecting them to by the end or anything, but it's interesting that they don't even like touch on it. Like never once hint at any reasoning for it. She just is just how it is and that's how it is. Um I in we we I thought there might be a little bit of that because towards the beginning, you know, she has this big um gala opening where they're showing her photographs and we, we learn that she's sort of controversial because she depicts like murder and, and violence um, in, in her photography. But this is where like we are introduced to Tommy Lee Jones. He's hanging out at this party and I, I don't know if he nec- he didn't know who she was or if he was playing around, but he, he sort of starts talking to her, almost flirting with her, asking yeah. her about what she thinks of the artwork and stuff. But um, it's, 
I don't know, like there, there's a, a certain point in the movie where um, after someone gets murdered, he brings her in for questioning and he shows some crime scene photographs next to her photographs and they're very similar. And um, she's and, and as an audience member, I'm like, am I supposed to, you know, it's probably like more like a red herring. Like, is she doing this actually? And she yeah. doesn't know it or what? But I was like, is there what is the connection here? And they don't ever really touch on that either where it's like you know um it, are these visions affecting her photography or what but they, they they try to throw you all around as far as making you believe you know and and it, we'll i'll talk about this a little bit later in the trivia but this is t- like when i start watching i'm like oh this is like an american version of a giallo like yeah it felt very much who done it like carpenter probably was watching argento stuff um and was like you know, oh, I could do an American version of this. Um, how much of this is is now like I, I've I've read a little bit about this, but how much of it actually, you know, of Carpenter's actually stayed in the script versus uh, David Z- Zela Goodman, who did you know Straw Dogs and Logan's Run, he ended up coming in and, and polishing it. They ba- they basically bought it from Carpenter and then came in and and changed it up quite a bit, and he he was not happy with the final result. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. To me, it seemed very, um, an American Italianized version, but, uh, it was, yeah, it sort of blew me away by seeing like face after face. Um, cause I, I thought this might be just sort of be like a low budget, you know, not big of a film. And then when I start seeing these names and the music and I'm like, oh, this was a big deal. How did I never see this? Yeah, I mean, you got you've you've got like a pretty big uh, '70s music star and Barbara Streisand, you know, uh, doing you know basically the the title track. Yeah, she wrote a song for the movie. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for a John Carpenter movie, which is well, not a John technically not a John Carpenter movie, but uh, yeah, Barbara Streisand, you know, doing a basically singing for a slasher film. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very, uh, like you said, very, uh, Italian giallo influence, you know, I mean, you know, we in America think we can do any, do everything better. So we don't need, you know, (laughs) black, black gloves or straight razors, you know, in this case, we'll just use an ice pick, which, you know, is very basic instinct, you know? Uh, which is which is which is weird. It's kind of like uh, it's like the reverse. Uh, it's like a reverse basic instinct when you think about it. It's like instead, you know, it's like it, it's spoiler alert. It's the cop with the ice pick this time, not the <laughs> yeah. uh, not the femme fatale. Yeah, when I saw you know when I started this and Faye Dunaway was on, I was I had to look it up, and uh, this was right after she I, th- I believe won the Oscar for Network. And you put her in a sort of, I mean, Mike's going to hate this because I know he'll listen, uh, but it's, it's more, I would say thriller more so than a horror movie, but um, it has horror elements for sure. I mean, it's about a, a murderer, like a serial killer. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like I said, we sort of get all these red herrings like they try. I think they put it pretty heavy on um, Tommy, who's played by Brad Dorff's character. Like we're supposed to believe most of the movie yeah. that it's him. Uh, we find out that he has a like a dark past. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's sort of a sketchy looking dude in general. Uh, yeah, he's he, I guess he's sort of like their driver slash like Aaron runner. Um, 
almost like their grunt that they they use yeah, a uh, gopher right for uh laura mars because you know she's in this busy she, lady yeah busy lady that uh it, which is sort of cool because to me it's like um you know especially for 78 like things were not at all progressive then and to have to have like a famous female photographer be your subject i was sort of like do we really need a a romance and a love interest but of course we get that because every movie did um and we we sort of get like a love triangle because uh raw played playing michael he's her ex and he's sort of jealous and and we there's a certain point where we're sort of led to believe it could be him um you know, obviously they're trying to make Tommy look bad. Uh, not Tommy Lee Jones to be confused with them, but uh, he's Neville, the John Neville. But uh, eventually, um, Laura Mars and uh, John, the detective, uh, hook up. And uh, I didn't really necessarily need that, but I guess it does add to the story where, spoiler, we find out that he is the killer. Mm hmm. I mean, I almost think I love seeing Raul Julia in this and uh, it almost was he was almost I think he was almost written in there as a sort of, you know, distraction for like the audience. It was like this, you know, look at, you know, look over here while we have this sleight of hand so we can give a big reveal later because he's barely in this. Right. He's at the very beginning and then at the very end. Yeah, and maybe a small, small scene where he breaks into uh, Laura's apartment, you know, and they have, like, this little schmeal. It's just like, I'm paying you to go away. And I was just like, did did we even did we even need him, you know? Yeah, uh, it's, it's... it did sort of just, I mean, he, him and almost uh, Tommy both sort of feel like they're just thrown into um, – make us think that they're the killers so that we, like you said, sleight of hand so that we don't know that it's the detective the whole time. Here's, here's the weird thing, you know, beings that, you know, the time that this was made and the fact that we're watching it so many years later, this is where it kind of threw me off because I, this is, this kind of helped me. It actually made the movie more entertaining because as you know the the rabid movie watchers that we are we we try to guess like we try to figure out the whole damn film's plot like within the first five minutes you know we're just like we're trying to you know figure out okay we could i we could we're going to try and call this it's just like we almost try to sabotage ourselves but you know since we try to do that you know we're just like we see tommy you know come out of the car and say have a nice night you know mrs mars i was just like okay this guy is set up to be creepy in the beginning so we're you know we're gonna we're we're meant to be thrown off by him and it's gonna be somebody else right it'd be too simple if it was him yeah exactly but and then i started thinking okay this is 1978 Maybe if maybe, you know, this is before we, you know, all all the writers got hip and smart and tried to keep fooling us. I was just like, well, hell, it might even could be it could be him, you know, and I was just like, you know, no. And as as further on as the movie progressed, I was just like, okay, it's probably not him. And, you know, and then my mind went to Michael. So, I mean, oddly enough, 
being that this movie was so old, it kind of kept me second guessing my own intuitions about it. It was just like, man, maybe it is Michael. I mean, who uh, who knows? But and then I was just like, okay, it's probably definitely Tommy Lee Jones, and it definitely was. Yeah, when uh, like th- there's this actually a scene where they think that they've caught the killer, and um, it's th- they have Tommy and uh the detective john like goes up he, he calls they talk on the phone and he's like come up to your place they're searching through his place and he's like come up i'll clear the the scene come up and talk to me and he's you know claiming his innocence um claims he you know blacked out whatever and it's like at that point i was like okay i know how uh, we're almost at a detriment because i know how much time is left in the movie and i'm like we we thought oh it's solved it can't be that simple so then at that point i knew it wasn't him but they try to like throw us even there where it's like we caught him we know who did it um i i don't really consider myself like i I get fooled by movies a lot so this was not um surprising it's not surprising that i didn't know uh, who the killer was i was like oh of course i was thrown off um that it was the detective the whole time but uh did we ever really find out like a motive like why he was doing this what i got from his monologue at the end is that he had like this traumatic childhood which in turn you know um he had this split personality um did did you get that well yeah a little bit because when he's about to kill her she like grabs him and she's like i love you and brings out the like the good guy in him yeah because i mean he starts you know to go on and on about you know oh it was tommy and blah 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 and he said you know his his mother was you know this this oh yes 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 now i remember all that that monologue at the end where he talks about like seeing his mom yeah with yeah uh, he says i saw the blood dry you know on her neck you know and just like and and laura says wait a minute you said i right he switches from telling the story from outside as as a third person to like telling it about himself yeah he was telling his own story as he as it was Tommy's, but it was it wasn't Tommy's. It was himself. And then the the thing that really stood out to me, that really that really hit it home, is when he takes the ice pick after she says "I love you." You know, the good in him, you know, pushes her away. He stabs this 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 mirror, and you see a dual image of him. You see a regular you know, standard mirror of him. And then you see the shattered part of him, which is really a representation of his psyche. There's this really bad, broken part of him. And then there's this, there's the goodness in him, which in turn asks her to kill him. Yeah, I thought some of the uh, scenes where they were like doing the photo shoots were really cool. Um, Very like hip New York, late 70s, um, actually pretty like i i I don't know i thought it was actually like sort of um ahead of its time as far as like i thought the photography was actually really cool like the stuff that they Mm -hmm. made for her photography and her setups of like making them look like murder scenes of course now that's like nothing you know we're we're also desensitized to everything but at the time they were like this is a big deal can you believe this woman is staging murder scenes and and um you know, she's glorifying the blood and gore and stuff. And the funny thing is like 
the movie itself doesn't have a whole lot of that. Like most of the kills are off screen. We see them from the, from through Laura's eyes from the killer's perspective, um, which is very, very much yellow where he's looking through windows and, and it's funny because looking voyeuristic, right. And looking back at it, it's like, Oh, it should have been obvious who it was because the whole time, like they're under police protection yet. They're getting murdered. How's that happening? Oh, it's the police. Duh. But, um, you know, everything's hindsight. Uh, but there's even a, a point where her friend, uh, Donald, like they're, they're at this party and, uh, Laura needs to leave, but the cops are there protecting. They know that they'll follow her if she leaves. So he dresses up as her in disguise, walks out and ends up getting murdered for it. Yeah. Th- th- there's another thing about that, that party where, you know, I, I couldn't really quite grasp the understanding why she had to leave because she kept going on and on about how she paid him off to get out of her life. Mm-hmm. And then now she thinks that, you know, Donald's in trouble. He's like at some laundromat or something and he's, th- he's wanting, wanting to kill him. Well, I mean, she's probably trying to help him. He, she doesn't want him to kill himself, obviously, but, um, so she, so she leaves. And this is one thing that I have a problem with in um maybe just maybe just older movies is that she she starts having these uh these visions and when she has these visions she can't actually see and she's behind the wheel of the car i mean she's you know and she's you know she's in this murph mobile and if you don't know what the (laughs) murph mobile it's this it's this amc pacer looks it's the same type of car that uh garth drew, yeah i love in it wayne's, in wayne's world and it's got like this wood grain on it it's cool it's as just, shit yeah it's, it's very just, 70s yeah and it, here's the thing here's the problem that i have yes we know she's the heroine and you know she's no you know and all this and that and as she's committing about you know 35 hit and run felonies and driving through you know everywhere you know it's just like she's completely exempt to like any you know punishment whatsoever oh, yeah. right into a front of a building too <laughs> yeah yeah it's just like and i i would love to hear her explanation to like you know the an officer on the scene i'm sorry i was having psychic visions you know and then they they cut to like, you know, here's Tommy Lee Jones just ushering her, ushering her in to her apartment, like during the same night as you know she's you know hit fourteen, fifteen different cars, you know, and she's all over like you know Fifth Avenue. It's to me that's just hysterical. I mean, it's it's a little believable because she's um like fam- rich and famous, and like they yeah, they fair. they have some privilege. I'm not saying that it's um right or that is even accurate but it's a little more believable if you think of it from the perspective that one she's sleeping with the detective and that's true two she uh is a famous photographer that could probably just pay everybody off like let my insurance take care of it um you know send send poor tommy put tommy behind the wheel and say it was him uh yeah because he sort of gets dragged and, and there's several scenes in here where they like i said in hindsight um looking back it's like they try to make us really really like uh tommy lee jones because there's like a scene where they bring the women and all her models in for questioning at the police station and uh they all want to be around him and not the other detective who's sort of creeping on them and he's like do you ladies need to ride home and they're like yes and he's like well let me call the other guy in and they all go no 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 we'll take a cab 
Um, sort of a little bit of humor in there, but it's also like looking back at what we know now is that he's the killer. It's like, you know, they were clearly trying to just make him a little more likable, but was was Tommy Lee Jones just born like 45 years old? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he, he may have been. He at least he, he's handsome in this and he, he looks young for him. But it's like, Jesus Christ, this was 78. And he looked like a, you know, he looked like he was in his 40s or 50s. Like he and, yeah. he, and he always looks angry. He has a gnarly unibrow in this. Um, yeah. Very 70s hair. Uh, it's just. Why has this guy always just looked old? I mean, he's a, he's a great actor, and he sort of had this weird career where he played, you know, he he got to chew up some dialogue in this. He actually gets uh, credit for writing the monologue that um, his character says uh, that John says at the end because he wrote yeah. that, like he actually wrote that do- dialogue, so he got a little bit of a writing credit for it. But um, and then he sort of had this like weird. I remember him as a, you know, as a nineties kid as two face. And then, um, now he just sort of plays a grumpy old guy. I mean, of course he's great in like no country for old men and, uh, some of that stuff, but you know, it's his, he's had an interesting career. Yeah. Yeah. I remember him. I think the first time I saw him and yeah, he's, he's got like the permanent, like, you know, this permanent voice like he's constantly scolding you you yeah. know he's kind of always talking he kind of always talking like that why are you always doing that you know um but it was a movie with brian dennehy and uh the chick with the glasses from Go- uh, martha plimpton played it played his daughter it was a movie called the river rat and he's like this former uh convict that you know finally reconnects with his daughter because he's never met her and he was and he was sent up uh for a murder that he didn't commit and there's like this treasure just somewhere along the the mississippi river i remember like watching that as a long time as a kid and i thought that was like you know when you're a kid you think that's like the only movie that tommy lee jones ever did because like, <laughs> that's the only thing i ever really saw him in that i you know as a kid that i thought was like worth watching you know i mean i didn't want to i didn't want to watch you know coal miner's daughter i didn't give a shit about that <laughs> obviously he had like a almost a resurgence with uh men in black that brought him back yeah uh and and he still played like the grumpy old like uh boomer in that movie that was the yeah. c- counterpart to will smith you know just an angry sort of uh straight laced no nonsense kind of guy that he plays all the time now yeah but, it was fun to hear him sit hear him scream eat me though <laughs> I, I thought everybody uh did a phenomenal job like this was a really good cast i thought the movie like, absolutely the, 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 had a cool score uh the look of it was just cool like it's hard to, i don't know like late seventies, uh, early eighties for me, like th- like thriller slash horror type movies. Th- it's just like my favorite, you know, time for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I love the look of and and I know Insane Mike, if he's listening, will agree with me at this. the the love The look of seventies New York. You yes. Know, the forty second Street. You know, and 
And it's a funny thing because as I was watching this, I like to, you know, especially if they're like, you know, going down really well lit streets, you know, and stuff like that. I look for the movie theaters. I was trying like crazy to see if like Halloween was like on one of the marquees, if on like a theater marquee, because this is 1978. I was like, oh, God, please. That'd be like the ultimate Easter egg. But I was like, no, couldn't didn't see it. Yeah, I have a little bit of uh, some notes on the production involving Carpenter because that's sort of what drew us into this. Um, the film's the film source story was written by John Carpenter, as was the earliest version of the screenplay. Producer Jack Harris had worked with Carpenter on the latter's feature film directorial debut, Dark Star, and it was Harris who optioned Carpenter's 11-page treatment, then simply titled Eyes. Um, Harris planned to make the film independently of the major studios with privately raised finances and Roberta Collins in the lead. But Harris's friend, John Peters, read the treatment, and upon reading it, he became enthusiastic about its potential as a vehicle for Peters' then-girlfriend, Barbara Streisand. Mm. Peters got interest from Peter Goober at Columbia, and they agreed to finance the project's development. Streisand pulled out of the film, but Columbia were sufficiently enthusiastic about the script to move forward with another actress, and Faye Dunaway was cast. However, as a condition of this, the studio insisted on the script being rewritten. Uh, that's where David Zelog Goodman shouldered that burden, and uh, Carpenter was no. Carpenter said, "I was. It wasn't a pleasant experience. The original script was very good, I thought, but that got shat upon." <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of grumpy old men. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, definitely. But it's interesting that this started as like a very, you know, 11 page treatment called Eyes. And then it sort of just got like snowballed from there um, and it climbed the ladder up until Colum- someone at Columbia saw it. Uh, and it originally had Barbara Streisand as the lead. And then uh, they ended up, you know, after she dropped out, it was still such a strong idea. They felt that um, they decided to move forward with it and sort of just here's your money carpenter we'll buy it from you and then we're just going to do what we want with it yeah that's just i mean i can't imagine you know barbara streisand as a photographer uh you know photographing you know shooting pictures of hookers fighting in front of like you know cars fire hydrants yeah yeah just uh you know making like advertisements for chapstick or whatever the hell she was selling you know making you know shooting this for right yeah i can't picture that at all yeah i love the actually really like the scenes where um we see like behind the scenes where they're doing the makeup and the clothing and, and Laura's back there and she's telling her makeup artists like more eyeshadow, more this, more that. Like to me, those are some of the coolest scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And it blew me away because like there was this one uh, hairdresser guy and it, it was it was this this white dude with like really long hair. And I was just like. He was like a dead ringer to Lucas Haas, man, because I mean, <laughs> he looked like he looked like that kid from like uh, what that what was he in like Lady in White, you know, only with like really long hair or like uh, wasn't he in Brick too? Yeah, I think uh, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was just like God, that guy. It can't be Lucas Haas because like Lucas Haas was like a freaking zygote when this was made, you know. So yeah, wow. yeah, it was, it's it's really cool stuff. Yeah, I, I think this is something that I would revisit. It, it could definitely, uh, you know, not one of my obviously like not my one of my favorites or anything, but this is something I think uh, 
I would go back and rewatch down the road and, and knowing the ending and stuff, it's obviously not going to be a surprise, but something that I would recommend to people. I, I definitely think it, it is a quality film. It's actually better than I expected it to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, but yeah, just like, I love the, the look and the tone of the film just and the places where they shot, like the, the, the building, the uh, like, where was that? Like by a dock, like maybe by like Hudson Bay or something. That that big green building where they sh- where they shot some of the stuff, and uh, just the look of the seventies uh, New York apartments. You know, like Laura's apartment is just like like crazy. Like with this this circular bedroom with like a platform where you know the bed is on. You know, just like I love that that stuff. I love you know just the look of. Uh, uh 70s you know decor just in general and it's just like it's it gives it gives off a really really different feeling when you when you're watching it because like you know you you watch uh a movie like um halloween and you know it's you know it's in the 70s you know but you don't really feel like you're uh I don't. I don't know. It's this is. I guess this is high end seventies. Um, yeah, it's not like an exploitation decor. film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not Death it's, Witch. It's not. It's not grimy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more like uh, this is. Uh, I guess I don't know where this is. Se- this is cocaine, and the the, <laughs> the 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 Death Wish is more like I don't know. I guess like heroin. It, and and fed yeah dirty black tar you know amphetamines and such you know yeah we we do get a little bit of look of that when they get into uh Tommy's when they break into or not break in but they or they think that Tommy's the killer they go into his apartments a little less uh a little lower class a little scaled down cuz he's just a gopher but um yeah it never really touches quite on like taxi driver level of of scum yeah but it's still like the you know the looks it's just new york was a different world at that time yeah and it was i feel i from what i could tell i mean new york was actually more you know i mean it's not it's not a super safe place right now mind you but they said like back in the 70s like new york was like a very much more dangerous place um uh, and just and, and just backtracking a bit, you know, a little bit to the driving. The thing that I thought was hilarious that uh, about you know talking about Tommy is that he's driving around in like an AMC station wagon, you know, and he's carting him around, and he's still wearing that stupid chauffeur hat. You know, yeah. it's just like is that is that like really even necessary? <laughs> yeah it's it's almost yeah almost like is that is that supposed to be funny or is it just yeah uh, what's the deal is it something that brad dorf found on set and was like i want to wear this yeah or yeah they just you know <laughs> it to make him feel like you know he was more high class than he actually was right let's know? let's uh you know polish this turd he he wears like a brown dirty brown leather jacket and like bell yeah. bottoms the rest of, you I know f- yeah, I think I think he had like like was it like a members only jacket, you know, yeah. or yeah. yeah. Uh, good stuff. Well, let's hear from the PFPN, and then uh, we'll come back with some trivia. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal 
providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, so as always, um, take most of the stuff I say with a grain of salt because it's just found on the internet and... We know everything on the internet's true, but um, of course it is. This was the, actually the first major studio film of writer, director, composer John Carpenter. Um, they ended up changing the ending, uh, the killer's identity. I don't know who it was in his original. Uh, oh wow, screenplay. that'd be interesting to know. And I always think, like when I was watching this, I kept wondering what it would look like if Carpenter got to direct. But um, this was mm. this was released uh, just months. Uh, before Halloween, so this movie actually came out before Halloween, so no one, oh, wow. like no one, really knew that name. Can you imagine, like, if if it would have been, I, I I wonder if they would like if the if it was reversed a little bit and Halloween had become this big hit and then they push it, you know, like the Columbia pushes, like, oh, the next big hit from director John Carpenter, you know, he wrote this movie. I imagine they would have used his his name a little more prominently, um, if this came out after Halloween, but um. It probably would have said John Carpenter's eyes of Laura <laughs> yeah. Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and both posters and newspaper ads uh, with taglines like, you, can, you can't always believe what you see. Faye Dunaway's face appeared a little bit at a time, beginning just with the overbright image of her eyes and the rest of the facial features appearing in subsequent ads until the face was featured completely in the final poster. So that's really sort of cool. Um, over time, they revealed a little bit of her face in each new ad until right before the movie was released. You see the whole thing. Uh, so, you, like, your eyes are focusing. Yeah. Uh, Faye Dunaway was dating ace British photographer Terry O'Neill at the time, who coached her for the role. Um, they later married and then divorced, which very common. Um, mm, Hollywood. Yep. Uh, uh, we touched a little bit on this one, but uh, Barbara Streisand, who was originally attached to star as Laura Mars, sings the theme song Prisoner from this movie. It's the only song that Streisand sings for a movie in which she does not appear. Um, producer John Peters was dating her at the time, brought the screenplay as a starring vehicle her for her, but she eventually decided not to take the role because the kinky nature of the story. So that's why she dropped out because it was a little and sort of you talked about that earlier. He said, you know, can you imagine her photograph like photographing hookers and all this craziness? Like it'd be weird. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think it would have been near as successful as it would have been if Barbara Streisand was, you know. Oh, yeah. It's I can't, you know, Yentl or you know, I don't think Yentl could like, you know, take pictures of you know, hookers fighting in the street. It's just a little weird. <laughs> uh, Tommy Lee Jones actually wrote his own monologue unbeknownst to the writer's guild, but accredited it to the film's director, Irvin Kirshner. Um, Catherine Denevue, Jane Fonda, Goldie Hawn, and Diane Keaton were all considered for the role of Laura Mars at some point. Um, that oh, would... That's interesting. Yeah, I could see. Uh, I don't know. Looking back at that, you know, Jane Fonda, Goldie Hawn, and Diane Keaton. Huh. I could almost see Jane Fonda doing this. Yeah. You know. I think they I, I think the At that time. Yeah. I, I think uh Faye Dunaway ended up being like the perfect spot for it. She was like, I agree. very likable. She's very um she comes off as like strong and independent. 
uh, not like a damsel in distress. Like she does, she's sort of a boss bitch for lack of better words. Like she can hold her own. I felt like. Yeah, but she doesn't come across as a bitch. Right, right. Which is good. Yeah. Uh, principal photography on this picture was a close set to all non-production personnel. Reportedly, producer John Peters threatened dismissal to anyone who revealed any of the script's critical or important story elements. So, obviously came out in the days before internet and before, you know, spoilers, really. Um, which I'm sort of jealous of people who got to watch these movies and you know, without it's sort of a double edged sword. I mean, we talked yeah. a little bit about earlier, this trailer gave away a, a shit ton of stuff. So, uh, he was, <laughs> yeah. it, it was a closed set. So they don't reveal anything. And then the damn trailer shows everything. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't tell anybody anything. I'm going to do it. Right. Wait till I cut this damn trailer. Yeah. Four minute trailer that shows literally everything except for the very, very end. Um, George Lucas hired director Kirshner for the empire for the empire strikes back because he was impressed after seeing a rough cut of this film. So, uh, wow. Yeah. He was so impressed with this. He said, Hey, do a star Wars, uh, seventies disco era fashion photographer, Chris von Wagenheim's work, um, which was graphic photos depicting sex and violence was the inspiration for Lorimar's style of photography. See, now I want to check what check out this guy's work because this movie just made it interesting for me. Yeah, I want to check it out too. I haven't I haven't Googled the name yet, but I uh, I thought it was that that part of the story is really cool. Um, we touch on this one. The film is said to be an American example of the Italian giallo genre. Um, the film cast includes two Oscar winners, Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones, and one Oscar nominee, Mr. Brad Dorif. Nice. Um, and then the final one, which I thought was just sort of funny, is the Mad Magazine parody of this movie was called Eyes of Lurid Mess and was part of issue number 206 published in April 1979. So, I mean, that's a pretty big, that's sort of like the tip of the hat if you get parodied by weird al it's a big it's like you made it so i say there if you your if your movie's uh parodied by uh mad magazine in the 70s and 80s that was yeah. like in their heyday you know yeah that was like a that would be like a compliment if if you're big enough that they give a shit to make fun of you that means you did something right absolutely oh so that's all i have for trivia did you have any final thoughts on eyes of laura mars uh it's worth a watch. I I really I really think it is. If you if you like uh, movies, you know from from the seventies. I mean, I think everybody should like movies from any time period. But me personally, I I have an affinity for you know movies from the seventies because I uh, I don't want to say that they're they're more simplistic. I mean, I guess they would have to be in terms of technology and just, you know, the time period. And maybe that's why, maybe that's why I'm, I'm attracted to them. They're, they're just, there's, they're simple stories and they're just, they're, they're entertaining to me. And it's, uh, the nostalgia, even though I wasn't even really alive back in the seventies, um, it's the nostalgia gives me, you know, a fuzzy feeling. It kind of gives me a sense of, you know, what i missed so yeah i i too am a big it's not definitely not nostalgic for me because i was born in 85 but um i find myself drawn to movies of this decade uh i don't know if it's like the seriousness or the tone or just a combination of everything i love the music um 
not just yeah, it's got a, not just the score but the soundtrack in this we didn't really talk about is really good too it has some disco yeah some big hits in it um this is sort of towards the end of disco but um I, i'm not a disco hater at all i, I know that, oh no me neither that, no uh, I, I dig it me too i love it um i'll, I'll you know jam to some abba and bgs any any day but uh yeah, this I, I love the movie. I definitely recommend it. If you've made it this far and you haven't seen it, we sorry for spoiling everything, but it's still worth a watch even if you know. Um, just for the performances and, and just the sort of cool feeling. It's not a very long movie either. I think it's like an hour and forty minutes. Yeah. Um yeah. definitely worth checking out. It it surpassed my expectations uh for an early like all like I said, all I knew going in was that carpenter did the uh screenplay at some point and his name was attached i didn't know a single other thing and and this one really uh surprised me i'm i'm excited to uh be able to see it and, and talk to you about it yeah yeah likewise uh yeah i mean it's it's probably not faye dunaway's best film uh i don't know much about don't know much about her catalog but i got a feeling it's probably not her worst yeah um she's you know not screaming about anybody at about wire hangers but uh yeah it's <laughs> it's 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 a solid film i i liked it um don't don't let the trailer steer you away you know i mean just because you got the cliff notes doesn't mean you you know you shouldn't read the book right exactly so, uh, Andy, what do you have coming up for for yourself as far as are you working on any new projects right now that you can talk about? Or uh, I know you have, like I said, uh, you're in the top 10 finalists with your screenplay. So we'll look forward to hearing about that. Yeah, uh, it's more the same um, on this on this feature screenplay. Um, I'm waiting on more uh, on on news on other uh film competitions that's uh, excuse me screenplay competitions that that i'm enter entered in and i'll hear back from from them soon and i am working on something uh a new uh feature that's um that i'm going through on going through on my head right now i i don't really i can't really talk about it because it's not really all uh fleshed out but uh but yeah, I'm 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 always working. Um even even uh when I'm at my manufacturing job, I'm always, you know, tearing off like these pieces of paper and I'm like I'll be, you know, at like this industrial shear cutting quarter inch metal and I'll be tearing off pieces of paper. So I'm like <laughs> I'm I'm constantly bringing like these grubby like uh folded up pieces of paper with like you know oil stains on them and and it's got my ideas you know ideas for a scene or stuff like that so i mean it's just like it's a it's kind of like an archaeological dig to go through like my notes <laughs> because I, I i save them all i have you know ideas for stories that were uh on brown paper bags that i have like in these file folders it's actually it's actually kind of hilarious just you, to sit back and look at them. you never never know when inspiration will hit so you gotta be ready and and you know write it down exactly my memory is not at all what it used to be so i do i have notes all the time i now i put them more in my phone uh the note section of my phone but i do write handwritten notes all the time too yeah, yeah, it's uh like I said it's like my writing process cannot be forced. 
so it has to happen organically and you never know when it's gonna happen so like yeah that's why like most of my notes just make me like i'm they make me look like i'm some sort of grease monkey like you know that like took down orders you know just like at like a body shop it's just <laughs> it's it's crazy to look at no that's to me like uh you know it, it's great i know so many writers who yeah just have notes jotted down wherever they're at you know you have to do it um and, and comedians are the same way you know when they get inspired they have to get it down or they'll forget it absolutely well thanks so much for joining me it's been a pleasure talking to you as always oh god i had a blast i love it i love it yes have me on again oh of course we have to we have to have you back for cool hand luke and whatever else we find oh over yeah the definitely time. but um of course you can listen to both of us um on attack of the killer podcast uh you know we have a weekly show um every other week is the patreon exclusive episode but um you know, if you don't want to fork over $1 a month, uh, you cheapskate, <laughs> then you can listen to our regular episodes that go a lot longer than this show. But um, yeah, check us both out on Attack of Killer Podcast. Check out all the shows on the PFPN, and we'll see you next time on First Time Podcast. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A special thank you goes out to my friend Scott Schreiner for our intro and outro music. We'll see you next week on First Time Podcast. <laughs>